Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 137 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday. It's September 26th. It's 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney, and Steve, I'd like you to do a favor for us, though, because this podcast has been through a lot. I just, I, I don't even know where, where to start. I'm Steve Vladek, and I just, and, and, and that's it, and I'm done. <laughs> and thanks for being with us yeah. on today's you, episode. You, you take it from here. You, we, you, we have nothing left to talk about. Oh my god! I, I, you know, I don't even know where to start. I have been trying really hard all semester to not um, talk about current events in my con law class, and yesterday I had to sort of the, the dam finally burst. Yesterday I had to talk a little bit about how impeachment actually works. Wow! Yeah, I would think that'd be very hard to be teaching con law right now, or very wonderful. Yes, Did, they're going to be engaged. Yeah, but it's hard to sort of you know be in the middle of talking about Lochner and the Lochner era, and then be like, and by the way, this just happened. <laughs> and so for something equally exciting. <laughs> Yeah, that is tough. Hammer versus Dagenhart is just a critically important case. And oh, by the way, the president might be impeached. Mm. Yep, we have something to talk about on today's show. We will spend most of our time surveying in some order the range of issues from ICWIPA, which apparently is not yet a thing, but I'm still trying. The intelligence. Stop trying to make ICWIPA happen. (laughs) It's going to happen. Uh, we're going to talk about the whistleblower issues, but they've really been overtaken by events to a slight extent. We've well, except for some people who are still fixated on who the whistleblower is and the process he or she followed. It's like, um, that's kind of not the story anymore. Well, we've definitely, we don't want to bury the lead. We will talk about the impeachment inquiry, although I, I think we also need to talk about like, what exa- what exactly is different really saying? <laughs> it's an inquiry. Since, since, since they're not actually talking about introducing any articles of impeachment yet and how is it really different other than the so should we do dressing. should we do a short should we do what i did in conla yesterday a short constitutional primer on impeachment we'll do that for sure so let's just really quick note that we're going to mostly talk about that yes. but we will also talk about a big state secret big privilege. state secret ruling by judge collier mm-hmm. in the kalal uh, uh, Bilal kareem case the case formerly known as zaidan or zaidan versus trump That's that right. we had talked about a couple times what over the summer uh, well next time you're talking for a while on the show i will t- turn my oh. attention away and and uh, pull up the. Uh, the so you, you want me to vamp? You want me to? I want you to space. vamp. All right. Well, not right now. Soft shoe, please. Um, and then you had one more topic for today. Oh well. So I was on Capitol Hill this week, and I was, I was around the building some. And so I'll mention something about the hearing that the Senate Homeland Security Committee had on uh, on domestic. Which terrorism. I think any other week would have been a really important and well noticed and well watched here. And I just think yeah. you know. Man, tough news cycle. Yeah, it was just some members, us, witnesses, and some staff. But it was great. It was actually a really good, in the midst of a... Right, of when, a, no, when no one's watching, actually, you can be productive. I, I, I will do it right now. I'll give a shout out to Senators Johnson and Peters for conducting a really bipartisan and focused on what might make sense sort of hearing. It was Whoa. really great. And all, and all the members... We uh, still do that? Nobody, nobody was in there, as you say. Nobody was vamping for, for politics. It was just a discussion of an important topic. Nice to know that can still happen. All right, um, where to begin on I don't even know the impeachment begin. issue? Do you, want, do you want to start with the so as oh, not to bear the lead? Apparently, com- they've just published the identity. Um, okay, I don't All know right. where to begin. We'll come back to the yes. identity because there are issues about how the, uh, the yeah. whistleblower is, is being handled. Um, why don't we start at the top with the constitutional okay. framework of impeachment? Oh, okay, so we'll start there. So um, the, there's this meme out there that the House can't do anything and shouldn't do anything until it adopts, Bobby, a formal impeachment inquiry, um, right, a resolution authorizing a formal inquiry. I just want to say to that, nope, um, right, the Constitution has six different provisions that deal with impeachment, but only one of them actually refers to the House. Um, and all it says is the House has the sole power of impeachment, um, which means basically that as long as the House follows its own rules, 
Right. There's no constitutional, there's no statutory, there's no legal um, requirement of proceeding in any particular manner. All right. So, so we should not waste time on debates about process for impeachment. It is what it is. There, if it, there, there if anything pre- squirrely happens, it'll be interesting to see whether the rules are being followed and there, as the House sets them. And there are procedural rules in the Senate. The Constitution imposes a series of procedural rules in the Senate, but we're, we're, away, we're a long ways away from that. All right. So not every listener is going to know the distinct roles of the House and the Senate here. The impeachment concept, as, as some people think, they think that's the whole thing. The impeachment no. is like indictment, yes. and it sets it up for the trial, which right. takes place the House in the is, The House is playing the role of grand jury. Um, I mean, it's not quite a perfect analogy, but but you know, to to sort of make it seem like a regular case, the House is the grand jury. That's why there's only a requirement of a majority vote in the House to impeach. But impeachment is not um, anything other than a trigger, Bobby, for the trial in the Senate, right? For the for the potential trial of removal. Um, until and unless that happens, you know, the House. The, it, we've had two presidents who have been impeached. Neither were removed. Andrew Johnson was impeached. The Senate did not vote to convict. Uh, or to remove. Um, Bill Clinton was impeached. The Senate did not vote to remove. Can the Senate not do anything? This is, so this is, you know, this is what Mitch McConnell does to us, right? Mitch McConnell has us thinking about <laughs> it all It does of get the, you thinking about the possibility that they just won't start anything. So the Senate's current rules um, are mandatory in that um, there's actually a time that by one o'clock the day after the House managers have shown up and been recognized, the Senate's supposed to proceed to the trial. Um, okay, so there'd be a costly, visible thing to change those rules. Right. Now, McCon- right, it would, uh, as, as we know from the sort of nuking the filibuster scenario, um, the Senate's rules are only as good as a current majority is willing to allow them to be. And so all it would take is 50 votes and Mike yeah. Pence um, to change the rules. But, but why filibuster when you've got the numbers? Well, there, there is that. Um, we're a long way away from that, though. I mean, I think, you know, to me, I think a lot of uh, the other mistakes that I think a lot of folks are, are making is equating all of these Democratic members of the House saying they are now for an impeachment inquiry with saying that they will therefore vote yeah, to no, impeach. I, I think I don't think they've got nearly as much information about that. No. And of course, that underscores, that underscores the point of this thing that happened that seems so dramatic is arguably not so dramatic. Obviously, the well, footprint politically is, but I think you would agree that it's not the same as a clear majority saying we will impeach. Oh, oh, no. We're not, not there yet. No, no, no doubt. But, but uh, right, it, it's certainly true that people are overreacting to what the Democrats in the House are doing. Yeah. Um, however, um, I am perhaps naively optimistically assuming that a proper impeachment investigation with this president is likely going to reveal only more stuff. So might... what, okay, let's dig into that. Yeah. What, if anything, is different about now that there's an impeachment inquiry yes. investigation as compared to the various committee investigations that are already underway or that could be underway without saying the I word? Yes. So I don't think anything, to my mind, is different. But um, President Trump's personal lawyers and the Justice Department have been arguing in a number of these subpoena lawsuits that the House is not allowed to subpoena the things they're subpoenaing because it's not actually conducting an impeachment inquiry. To, um, re- yeah, to reference the subpoena lawsuits is to underscore the, the critical thing, which is there's the delaying action as mm-hmm. those very slow motion litigations unfold. It seems likely that that same exact sort of thing will happen and attach to any further subpoenas that emerge as a result of shifting into inquiry mode. If the subpoenas are to p- people who don't want to cooperate, of course that's yeah. true. If the subpoenas 
are people who want to cooperate, of course that changes. Right. Um, but but, but it's imp- I mean the one so this is all to say the one thing that I think has changed legally from when you and I recorded last week with regard to the you know cap the big I. Um, is that I think now the House in all of these lawsuits over subpoenas could go back and say, we don't think it needed to be an impeachment inquiry for these subpoenas to be valid, but now we've got one. Right. Uh, So take take at least one argument off the table. Right. Like, you know, now the courts can say we don't have to decide, like, whether it has to be in the context of impeachment or not, because at least, you know, we can assume without deciding it needs to be in an impeachment context. We're in the impeachment context. Go forth and subpoena. Right. Um, So I, I actually think in that regard, it might be important in the litigation, you know, the politics are a different matter. Yeah, I just think that it's still going to go so slowly that there's almost no chance this can get resolved if they want to wait to yeah. get all the documents. Yeah. Now, they may look at the, the election calendar and decide that at a certain point, okay, the litigations are all unfolding too slowly, the election's coming, let's go ahead and proceed to considering articles of con- impeachment based on what is known now, and including the, the resistance to disclosure of the information sought, perhaps as part of the the list of uh, problematic supporting facts. Yep. Okay, so is that enough for now on impeachment, and should we turn our attention back to the whistleblower scenario? Sure. So um, why don't we... Can we let's say let's save the substance for last because I think the substance is, is in some ways the most important, but also the most sort of still developing, right? Okay. Um, so when we sat down to record last week's episode, we started with a very long discussion about the mechanics of ICWIPA. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing, um, and yet there it is. <laughs> I just did that to make you smile, I buddy. Know. It you worked. Know. Happy birthday. Um, Speaking of which, stop the presses. Newsflash. Today is Steve's birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, happy to, birthday to you. Yeah, I got That's a whistle. Like I got a whistleblower complaint for my birthday, um, <laughs> or I got to read the whistleblower complaint. Um, so the 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 where we left things last week was you and I both I think thought, read the statute um, to probably impose an obligation on the acting DNI Robert McGuire to forward this complaint. Joe McGuire. Joe McGuire. Yeah. I keep calling him Robert. That's a mistake. Yeah, it was that whole name. Bobby thing we like did last it. week. There you go, <laughs> uh, Joe McGuire. Um, right, the the shall shall transmit right. language. So um, we, you know, jumping ahead to the punchline, right? We've now seen the complaint. The complaint, the complaint is now out in the ether. Right. There so is no longer skip a, ahead of there that. is no longer a dispute. I will just say though that um, we have now yesterday we were, yesterday we received access to a September twenty fourth OLC opinion on why. Um, the acting director had been instructed not to transmit the report to the intelligence committees. Um, today, we actually received the original underlying September 3rd memo. Um, and the analysis is much of what I expected, Bobby, right? That is to mm-hmm. say the core assertion is that because OLC disagreed on the merits with whether the complaint stated a, quote, urgent concern for purpose of the statute, which we walked through last week, um, the acting DNI was under no obligation to forward it to the committees because it wasn't a qualifying action within the statute. Right, which begs the question we focused on last week, which is who gets to stay to make the last right. judgment on that? It is not crazy to say that OLC gets to resolve statutes, but in this case, statutory interpretation disputes, but in this case, there was express language that seemed, and you and I both concluded, did lodge the decision in the IG, and you could see exactly why that might make sense. So it's not the sort of thing that's really eligible for that kind of second guessing, but nonetheless, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for McGuire as a position he was Mm -hmm. in 
once the question either put by him or brought out by the White House was put to OLC, and OLC says the definitive executive branch interpretation is as follows. But but I think OLC is wrong about that. So do I. Um, and and just but and I think they're wrong in two respects. So first. Let's assume for the sake of argument that they're right about urgent concern, right? right. Let's assume that you or – not you, Bobby, but that, yeah. the, that the listener who's read everything agrees with Steve Engel's analysis that the underlying complaint did not actually meet the statutory definition of an urgent concern, right? right? Because it's a term of art that ties in, as they say, to actual intelligence activities, whereas this was the president carrying out diplomacy wasn't an intelligence activity. Exactly. So um, – Let's assume for the sake of argument, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. Let's assume right. it's true. I still think, and I think you and I agree on this, that the statute commits the determination to the inspector general. Right. So you and I disagree at the first level because okay. I think I think actually the OLC analysis of whether or not in the first instance right. this should have qualified as an urgent concern. I think they're right that it, this is too collateral to actual intelligence activities, but. I think it doesn't matter because I don't think it's actually their place to override the statutory determination of the IG. I think that's lodged there for a reason. And the law of the land is that that was the last word and it should be transmitted from there. So I agree with you there. Now, the, what I think what you have not yet seen, because I think it just came out while you were in class, yep. is the September 3rd memo, um, which has more information in it, including two footnotes, footnotes three and four, that refer to other aspects of the whistleblower complaint that, by the way, we learned of this morning, mm-hmm. um, unrelated to the phone call, um, right, where the whistleblower was actually raising other concerns about the implications of the call. Right. Um, it might make a stronger case for satisfying even a narrow interpretation. Exactly. Of the so because standard. because both of those footnotes address allegations that go directly toward election interference. Um, and I think, you know, the, the there's no question to my mind that helping to ward against election interference is Intelligence Act, right? That 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 there's there's a closer nexus to me between the ambit of DNI's jurisdiction, so to speak, right, and election interference. So I thought you were going to go somewhere different with this, based on what I've gleaned of what yeah. came out this morning. But here, here's what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that the reference in the full complaint, which is now public, and yep. so we know we know there's this reference in it to the idea that apart from the call itself, there's an allegation of both as to that call and as to other unidentified calls, we don't know what they were about, mm-hmm. that there is a pattern of misusing the systems for, for capturing and storing and disseminating the word-for-word transcripts. And by the way, this thing everyone's been reading yes. is not the word-for-word yes. transcript. It's a memcon. It's a memorandum of conversation capturing the gist with some paraphrasing, perhaps, some ellipses, yeah. et cetera. Um, so we don't actually – I don't think we've seen the word-for-word transcript. Um, that – needs to be seen and presumably has been seen or is going to be seen by the members in Congress. Setting that aside, there's a claim that there's a regular system which has a certain amount of accessibility to it. Right. And that's where things that don't involve, say, code word right. sensitive Ordinar- information. Ordinary, ordinary diplomatic conversations. Right, which are privileged conversations. No et doubt. They go in there. And that what happened here was a uh, unorthodox decision despite not qualifying. By the White House Counsel's but, Office. Yeah, to, to shift it instead into this much more narrowly held. This TSSCI The place system. where like a covert action program might be might be described. For, and, and a court, now, this is an allegation. This is not a fact, right? But now, and the allegation of the claim is for political reasons. That is to say. Sure. Now, that's just, that's, I think, 
very likely, but also entirely speculative. That's so why I, so I said right. it's an allegation. Yeah. But but the uh, the claim is that there was no TSSCI top secret sensitive compartmentalized information worthy right. content. It was just put there to restrict the universe of people who would have access to the transcript. So here's to, what's to interesting. I think that that actually that sounds like it pertains to an intelligence activity, and it sounds problematic. Uh, and it bears investigation; could turn out to be right or wrong. But that sounds qualifying. This new little bit, but that's not the part that has people excited. That's that's such small beer compared to the allegation and and the now we've seen the wording yeah. of the president eliciting literally asking for a well, favor, so this, right. getting dirt on a political opponent. So this goes back to the process foul versus the substance, right? And so I'm not trying to belabor the point. I'm just trying to say that I think there are multiple avenues on which both lines of OLC's analysis are vulnerable, right? That is that that you and I agree that the merits aside, right, we still think the better reading of the statute is a mandatory disclosure obligation, even if right. OLC disagrees. And all I'm trying to suggest is I now think that having seen the September 3rd opinion and not just the September 24th opinion, I think OLC's merits analysis is also debatable on, I think, potentially multiple fronts. Uh, so that brings me back to the other thing. So you, you had highlighted aspects of this that I don't think, to me, brought it closer to the urgent concern term of art where it means there's a tie-in yeah, or a yeah. nexus with an intelligence activity that is itself yeah. potentially problematic. The way I understand you to be seeing the tie get stronger is the greater visibility of the counterintelligence concern. There's a there's a there's a favors, there's a uh, the commander in chief maybe, you know, now subject to some leveraging. Clearly a counterintelligence concern. I think framing it as counterintelligence concern is the best way to explain why, and probably to the IG was why, yeah. this is a DNI concern, that it's relevant. Uh, OLC takes the view that, no, it's not really about intelligence. Uh, intelligence matters broadly. Yes. It's about particular activities. I think that's, I'd like to know more about it, whether there's drafting history and intent that we can glean about how specific they meant to be. I agree, but, but the only thing I'll say is OLC, but, but on the two different, on these two additional sort of pieces of the complaint, OLC actually did not analyze them. Um, so the footnotes, which again, you're at a disadvantage. I've read them, you haven't. I don't mean right. to put you on the spot. No. But the footnotes say um, that because the inspector general did not make this the basis of his determination, we won't review it either. Oh, interesting. So they didn't actually build on that basis. No. And, right. I, and well, I, then they're stuck with the, the, the very narrow interpretation. But it's interesting. It, 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 to me, that signifies that they should have gone further to consider that That's, because is, that might have actually explained it. This is my frustration, right? My frustration with OLC is, you know, noting the argument and then being like, oh, but, you know, we don't have to address it because he didn't. OLC is not an appeals court, right? This is that's not how this works, right? The question is, was the complaint an urgent concern? The answer could be yes for reasons other than the ones found by the inspector general. In addition to them, for OLC to say we don't have to consider this because the IG didn't, I think is just not. It, it, it's not that it's just. I don't know what the right word is. It just it's it makes it makes OLC's analysis incomplete to me in a way that I think is actually misleading. And I'm very glad that we have the September 3rd memo because you wouldn't have known any of that. Right, you just might from have what wondered was yesterday. what else they considered. Well, the whole thing's a bit of a mess. If you step back and look at it big picture in terms of how the whistleblower law framework works, it makes a lot of sense that the idea would be that the IG makes the determination. And from there, it's just between the IG and Congress with the DNI acting as the ministerial transmittal agent, because after all, that official may be in a position to add some context that's important mm -hmm. and the statute authorizes him to do so. 
So this has been a blow to that particular arrangement. Uh, it suggests that whenever there's doubt about this, if it can get to the OLC, then OLC can take a different approach. And effectively, the I- IG is almost reporting up to OLC. Which I think that's, that's that, not, that, that, that would yeah. defeat the purpose of the entire statute. I agree. It, it just seems wrong. But, right, that is now, I mean, in this, in this fast-moving That's story. That's how it works. Um, someone tweeted this yesterday. I, just, I want to acknowledge this. It was a great tweet. Um, I, I, I sent a tweet about how we were recording today. Um, and the tweet was something effective. Um, by the time you guys record tomorrow, tomorrow will have been overtaken by events. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the day after is always a day behind at so, this point. That's, that's where we are. But so, so um, the process harm, which I think is still an interesting question, and I don't feel like we've had a, a, a full resolution yeah, so of it. Yeah. But... It sort of gives way because we now have the complaint, we have the IG's analysis, we have the two LC memos. Now I think we can get to what the heck is actually going on. Can I put here. one last pin in the, the process arm. Yeah. So the way this will be taken by the larger intelligence community workforce really matters in terms of every future moment of misdeed where someone might want to go whistleblower. And watching both whether the IG actually gets the last word, whether it can be squelched effectively. It wasn't squelched effectively here. There was an attempt to squelch it, but in the end it outed. So it's a bit of a mixed signal there. I think more important is what's the treatment going to be of this person once their identity is out? There's already been some trashing of this person, yeah. some some entirely predictable uh, suggestion that this uh, person had political motives, though there's, you know, what, what's the evidence for that at this point? But it's been whispered a bit here and there. Um, if this person suffers repercussions... Uh, That'll be a terrible precedent. It's a terrible precedent. Because, I mean, I, I just want to say this. Every single person who matters has said that the whistleblower complied with his or her obligations yes. under the law, right? So this no is one, not in Edward Snowden. Right. In fact, the, in fact, one of the major lines of criticism about Snowden that we've argued about before is his decision to just skip this whole process, basically saying, what was the point? Um, we cannot let that become, after the fact, accurate by having this person suffer repercussions. The whole system won't work if the workforce doesn't believe it actually has any prospect of working. And we saw that in Snowden. That, look what happens if someone takes it in their own hands. Yep. Even if you like some aspects of what he did, I, I don't think that one can successfully defend like the vast amount of additional information besides the stuff that really, you know, maybe there's a stronger case for. So, it. so, so someone, someone should stand up and say, kudos to you, whistleblower, right? You know, people may worry, people may think you were biased. People may wonder what your agenda was, whatever. You followed the law. You followed the rules. And, and well it, and done. It, and it was brave to do it. Yeah. And it was not easy to do it, even if he was wrong. Yeah, that's right. Or she. All right. Um, everyone's reporting it's a he. Okay. Um, All right, there you go. But what do I know? Um, okay, I mean, by the time we're done recording, which no, I'm be sure. Who even knows? All right. Um, so then there's the merits. Yes. So let's talk. So we've got then the memcon. Then there's the ten thousand pound elephant in the room, gorilla, there, whatever. There's both the memcon, but I think it's a terrible mistake to try to view that in isolation. Yes. If all you've done is read or hear a description of the the paraphrased memorandum of the conversation, you're doing it wrong. And you don't understand the full course of dealings, including the the cutoff of military aid, the restoration, the the, the holding weeks out of back the channel conversations, and and the relentless Giuliani private effort to. Admit, oh, Rudy. Oh, Rudy is right. Right. Uh, the relentless private effort to advance the president's interest in trying to ensure two tracks here, right? Uh, trying to gin up prosecution or a threat of prosecution over the Biden family. Uh, and then separately, this whole business going back to Hillary's servers and this bizarre sort of apparent, as I understand it, there's this like theory that CrowdStrike sort of took the server and shipped it off to the Ukraine and it's hiding in Ukraine somewhere. And where is that anyway? I, I just, I can't I mean, even. I can't even. 
I can't even. So, so all this to say, I mean, I have two levels of reaction to this, right? One is even the memcon. Let, so let's just start with the memcon. Let's let's build out, right? Even the memcon to me is not nearly the exculpatory document that has been portrayed as by the president's supporters. I, I, do, I understand that as a political matter, there are people who, no matter what, have to say come that. out and say, "Hey, see, not so bad." Right. And, and from a certain point of view, there were there were some uh, previews of what it might be yeah, that yeah. set a tip entirely predictably set up right. the response of the like, me- "Oh, it's not so bad." The memcon does right. There's no line in the memcon where he says, um, "If you you know, give me this or I will do X." Right. But there but is, but as, as many people have said, there is a this and there is a that. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to draw the this for that. No, it's, he literally says after the conversation, you know, we're thinking about buying some military stuff. Yeah, that's great. I need you to do me a favor, though. Though, though, and though is a big word. Though, right? though absolutely. Though, as in, you as know. in like, here, as in condition. Right. Yeah, no, I actually think it's fairly straightforward. But the memcon itself is bad. The only, oh, it, I don't know. No reasonable person can read this as not bad. There are so many reasonable. Well, okay. There's so many people who I used to think were reasonable who are out there, and you know, yeah. n- the term "nothing burger" is getting bandied about as if you know, as if it's okay to say that what I need you to do right. is re- reinvigorate this this story that tries to, de- to to pin the rose on on Hillary's server for something I don't even know what, and obviously much more critically, the express express request to return to investigating the Biden family. It's several people have said to me, and I've seen online people saying like, what? So presidents can't urge other countries to to conduct investigations. Um, it is commonplace. Think about the terrorism setting. Yeah. Uh, it's commonplace to urge other countries to please, you know, please investigate this criminal activity. Yes. Please do something. The president can't do that as to his own political opponents. Full stop. Right. This yes. is, there's nothing tricky about Not this. hard. Not nothing hard. Nothing tricky about this. No. It's not hard. Not hard. That's, I, there's nothing else to say about that. Okay. Um, and then there's the rest of the complaint, right? And and there are a couple of different things in the complaint that I think are worth addressing before we just sort of, I mean, you know, people who want to disagree more, today might not be the day. Not um, the day. So the, the whistleblower complaint, the first, the whistleblower complaint describes in fairly, in more detail, the pattern that you're referring to, right? The sort of the, the series of back channel overtures, the, the various authority Giuliani was apparently given, um, the role of the attorney general, uh, right? The role of the secretary of state, the role of the vice president in some of these conversations. So the uh, document is, and of course, a lot of it's hearsay, so we have to yeah, acknowledge that. Of course it is. But the, the document is a very handy contextualizer uh, if if it all unfolded exactly as described, it puts the memcon, which as we both agreed is bad on its face, in a far worse light because it makes irreducibly clear, if it's accurate, that this is absolutely entirely about conditioning a variety of things the Ukraine's leadership wants and needs or hopes for on whether or not they are pursuing these two yep. pet personal political interests of the president. Yep. I'll say for and you know there obviously there are efforts to attack the credibility of the whistleblower because you know he or she didn't listen to the call primarily. Um, I'll just say um, the whistleblower complaint discussion of the phone call tracks perfectly the oh, memcon. Yeah. No, there's there's a complete corroboration. It actually it doesn't overstate the memcon at all. No. Not at all. I mean, I, I actually found that. I mean, I, I think, kept thinking it might. And that's it right. Didn't. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Yeah. Okay. And then, and this is the thing that I think is is maybe the. I don't know if this is the most important thing, Bobby, but this is the piece that I think might be the most, the, the one that sort of has the most legs. Um, I want to find. I want to make sure I get the quote exactly right. So I'm just trying to pull up my phone. Um, so the complaint um, citing multiple U.S. officials um, alleges that this is not the only example of a 
uh, important phone call between the president and a foreign leader being um, routed or, or, or stored in the TSSCI system for political reasons, right? And suggest that there are actually a number of such calls where the White House was very nervous about um, the full range of people who would have had access. By the way, people who work in the White House. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, who would have had access to um, the calls if they'd been placed in the normal storage system. And that, in fact, a number of calls were moved into the TSSCI system for no other reason than to minimize their political, their potential political impact. I'm completely prepared to believe that that's well, the right. case. Um, but I'm not much moved by the speculation about that in the uh, in this particular whistleblower complaint until until we get a little bit more than yeah, right. I've I, heard that other examples for similar reasons may be there so that's, so, that's too uh, yeah I, I don't this is not a smoking gun to me um, sure it is smoke it's it's entirely plausible and so um, and so it seems to me that like one of the first things I'm interested in if I'm the intelligence committees, Oh yeah, no, no. You want it. You want it. You want an audit of this, and and, and an audit, and no, and, and now, as you said before, now we're into an area where no one can object to this being outside the jurisdiction of the intelligence committees because that's a you know the purpose of the TSSCI system is to protect TSSCI information. That is something in which the intelligence committees have a deeply interest, you know, a deep interest. Prediction, if and when. So this one's a little bit weedy and nuancy. So maybe it'll never spill over and have political weight. Yeah. If and when it does, immediately we're going to see uh, White House talking points about oh the. Obama used to do, you know, there'll be the whataboutism. We'll, we'll the, 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 someone right now in the White House is counting, right, how find. many transcripts were put in the TSSCI system during the Obama administration that didn't technically have TSSCI information in them. So there, I'm guessing someone listening maybe knows and maybe can tell us there surely has to be a log that shows which conversations go where and, and what the categorical explanation was uh, insofar as those conversations are kept. If that log says this is here because of the presence of code word sensitive, right. you know, say SIGINT program information Indeed. or covered action program information, uh, well, it's a little it's a little bit of a task for somebody with the right clearance to go through and do an audit to see if in fact they were properly allocated, and and if not, what's in them? Who knows? Maybe there's more whistleblower complaints coming. So, um, I mean, more something. I mean, the you know the, the other piece of this. So so I, I there are lots of things about the the Republican reactions I find distasteful. Um, but, you know, I would think at the very least, folks should say, I'm not convinced yet that anything nefarious happened, but obviously there's enough here to warrant further investigation. And that's not even the line. There, there are, you know, there are some who certainly want more investigation. You so, know, yeah, so, so Romney, uh, Romney and Sass. Romney came and Sass came out early, both of them. Kind of predictably saying like, look, if, if this is true, this needs we got to investigate. Further. Yeah, I, I, I'll say I was not enamored of Sass's suggestion that the Democrats were jumping the gun on even talking about impeachment, but whatever. Um, you know, he said at least he recognizes the need for more investigation. Absolutely, Romney, the same thing. Um, those are not exactly they're not speaking for the core of the Republican caucus. Well, that's the that's the fundamental thing, right? Yeah. So this the the Republicans aren't one single group, although over time it becomes <laughs> more and more Trump's are. party, yes. right? And that's. That's one of the fundamental problems here. Yes. All right. Um, where do we go from here? So, so I don't mean in the episode. Yeah, I mean, I mean right. what, what do you see as, as what's likely to happen next? So I think this goes back to my comment earlier that there's going to be all sorts of additional or reinforced requests for witnesses, for subpoenas, if, 
if, if the leadership and the chairs are prepared to actually do something with the idea that they have more wind at their back, having draped the label impeachment inquiry or, or I squared, if you will, over this thing, um, it's not clear to me they actually beyond wanting to get the rhetorical appearance of having given way to this mounting pressure this week, not clear they actually want to change the extent to which they've been pursuing certain information anyways. So we have to watch over the next two weeks. Does anything really change on the subpoena front and on the on the hearings front? I mean, one thing that's not happening is is the leadership in the is, is Pelosi and the chairs saying every single day we are in session. We're holding a hearing today. No. We're holding a hearing tomorrow. We no. are pressing now. We are moving for expedited relief. There's not a great sense of temporal urgency about this, which goes very nicely with the Trump legal strategy of, you know, make all available arguments, ask for extensions of time, uh, intervene in the New York legislation. We should note that, right? The the government intervenes in the New York state legislation, asking for a delay on on the tax uh, the tax records litigation. Why I said legislation? It did. Yeah, same. So not the same. Same difference. Um, so anyways, I think that the strategy of dragging this out and getting closer to the election, the closer it gets to the election, anyone who's on the fence about whether to actually pursue a more formal step might begin saying, well, the American people are about to weigh in on this. Let's see how it goes. That's what John New wrote in the New York Times. Is it? Yeah. Oh, He's my like, gosh. hey, here we go. Just John, wait and see. John News op-ed. All right. We're not going to go there. So um, I think, you know, by the way, I think, you know, Pelosi's taking tons of lumps for not being more forward-leaning on moving towards impeachment. I've assumed all along the reason why is, is a calculus by her that impeachment proceedings, barring a sufficiently publicly waiting new bit of information, which this probably isn't for the for the people that already like Trump. Even though it should be. But right. But it probably isn't as a descriptive matter. Yes. I think her judgment was this is going to help Trump more than it will hurt him in going into the election. And now we're going to find out I'm whether sh- that's right or not. So I, I have a slightly different take, right? I think Pelosi wanted to do this all along but was waiting for the right provocation, right? That that the, that that she decided the Mueller report wasn't enough, right? Um, and that she decided that for a whole bunch of obvious political reasons, she couldn't do this until there was some until the until there was at least some pressure on at least some Republicans, right, to not just fall in line in their party. And there's one scenario where actually the politics are really good for the Democrats, even if this ends up not actually resulting in the president's removal, which is now at least the Democrats look like a unified front on the issue. And so from the perspective of the base, the Democratic base, being agitated at not seeing enough movement from Pelosi and other Democrats in Washington, from the perspective of the Democratic primary, where the presidential candidates would have been put in this awkward position of having to either, you know, criticize Pelosi or in, or or condone her conduct and then risk pissing off the primary voters who are perhaps yeah. more to the left than even, right? Um, this actually shifts all of the attention off of the Democrats, or at least most of the attention off mm-hmm. of the Democrats for doing nothing. Right. And onto the Republicans for stonewalling. So I think they get like three weeks out of that. That's right. And then and so, and so within we, a and month, so, and, people, so, and so where right. are we in three weeks? And it's and so and that's why I think if that's the logic, it's not very smart logic on their part because in a month from now, the question will be: Where have you appointed a committee to draft articles of impeachment? Yeah. When are those coming? Where yeah. are they? And if the answer is no, it's just going to replicate and maybe even an accentuated. Well, way. I think there's also a bit of a power struggle going on right now between Pelosi and Nadler, 
um, because I think Nadler is much more Nadler, who Jerry Nadler, my my parents' congressman, who's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, um, I think is much more gung ho about moving all, you know about all systems. Uh, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Is that Farragut, right? Yeah. Um, I think Pelosi's a little more cautious, and so. You know, there's also this question of whether she's going to let the Judiciary Committee take the lead or whether she's going to name a select committee, which she'll have more control over, but which will take longer. So, you know, I, I yes, there's a lot to figure out. I just think that um, it's not clear to me yet that this isn't a tipping point, right? And that and that we won't look back on what happened in the last yeah. 10 days as actually a pretty fundamental shift in the public's perception of the president and the sort of the stakes of what happens next year. It's certainly the closest to a tipping point we've had since the, the if you will, the, the Mueller moment, yeah. which ends up being flatter than a lot of people thought it was going to be. Indeed. Um, I have a, my instinct is this won't prove to be that different a month and a half from now. Lord only knows what kind of other events unfold in the meantime yeah. to, to undermine this. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, all right. I think we've run that one to the ground. Do you want to do a <laughs> quick hit? Before some fun frivolity as a palate cleanser, <laughs> um, we've got a state secrets privilege decision we in do. a case we've talked about previously. What uh, r- Remind us what was going on in uh, Kareem Bilal's case. The, the, these are, the original case was multiple uh, U.S. persons who were journalists in the uh, Syria theater claiming that they believe they've been targeted for drone strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the fact that they say like, I've been nearly killed m- multiple times, I think that I think I'm on the kill list, and so they want to litigate. It's a little bit like the Alalaki decision uh, or litigation back in the day, and predictably, uh, first one defendant I think was dismissed. If I recall correctly, from episode, uh, which one was it? Maybe 116. I'm looking at my notes here. Mm. Um, I think the first Zidane was dismissed. I think for Z- being, Zidane. Zidane was dismissed for Z- having Zidane. Zidane was was a different, yeah, yeah, that's that's a exactly. different, different kettle of fish. Soccer got in my head um, for being too speculative about uh, standing. Whereas this one, I think, got past that hurdle. But now under state secrets privilege Zidane just, and, and political question. Right, the, 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 the original Zaydan decision was really important in rejecting the claim that the political question doctrine barred this lawsuit. Right, but left open the – and you, you know my view is that when applied as a, as a grounds for dismissal, there's, there's not much difference in practice between uh, that robust use of state secrets privilege and the, the formally different but functionally same outcome political question ruling. And that's what's happened now. The case has been dismissed on state secrets grounds on the grounds that the very subject matter of litigation is such that it just can't be litigated without requiring uh, – exposure of information, the public exposure of which would be thought to pose an undue risk to national security, uh, involving, I, I can summarize by saying, the the details of who's on the kill list, who's not, how does that all work, et cetera. It's all classified. It's all considered to be under the very forgiving standard of Reynolds uh, in scope for the privilege. So unless the court was prepared to strike out in a way to try to change the doctrine, I think it was fairly predictable that this was going to be uh, the outcome, barring some public disclosure that outed exactly what this particular person's status was within uh, the alleged uh, kill list. So, I mean, my reaction, I think, is largely the same as yours, except that I think you and I have fundamental differences about what we think the correct doctrinal rules ought to be. Um, yeah, we have right? normative differences, but descriptive, this is yet another case to either applaud or lament where civil litigation just is walled right, off. Right. I mean, I just, I, right. I mean, I, so I, I have no brief with Judge Collier 
um, for, I think, faithfully applying the doctrine. I have problems with the doctrine. What about what about problems with Congress? So back, uh, just to kind of <laughs> I have make, lots of problems yeah. with Congress. That's, that's easy. <laughs> that's, here's a fastball right on the or a softball right down the middle. Pete Alonso, man, boom! Ooh, what a, what a year! Um, One more to tie, Judge. Back in, in in towards the end of the Bush administration, there was all this momentum uh, towards a state secrets privilege yeah. piece of legislation. And the, Obama, the State Secrets Protection Act. Yeah, right. The SSPA uh, had mostly stuff I thought was good and useful. It had a few things I thought were unwise, but it was it was a great start and a, and a good bill could have come out of that. Yeah. Um, the Obama administration comes in and far from supporting it, um, one of the earliest signs of how Obama wasn't going to be the way a lot of his supporters maybe just assumed he was going to be, uh, they instead did a classic national security move, which is to form an internal executive branch process to think about internal reforms and then adopting new pro- policies that had the effect of taking the wind out of the sails of the legislative effort. And that was it. There's been no serious chance of legislation since uh, the Holder uh, Justice Department adopted new procedures, which were more formally uh, detailed than the old procedures, but functionally, I don't think produced different results. Um, is it time to revive that? Do you think? Do you think there's any chance Congress is going to go back to the well on this? Not this Congress. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, as you know, I think that there is a longer conversation that Congress should have had years ago, and I hope has soon, about the structure of government accountability and litigation. That does not where where I think the state secrets privilege, Bobby, is just one very specific jot of the thing, you know, causes of action, immunity, right? Yeah, Um, would you rather, if you could have Bivens uh, revived or state secrets reformed? Bivens. Heartbeat. Heartbeat. Because, because, (laughs) you know, without Bivens, um, you never get to the state secrets privilege in many of these cases, right? I mean, you know, it's only... Got to have a cause of action, step one. That's right. And so I I think there's no question that, you know, I, I start with the most categorical defect, which is the you know, widespread, if not general, unavailability of a cause of action in this yeah. context. All right. Um, we've talked about Congress some. Let me just note, because I said I would, that um, the past couple of days I was up in Washington. Yeah. It was fascinating to be around the buildings at that time. Uh, there were lots of lots of uh, sense of drama in the air. Not so much, though, in the, in the hearing room I was in. The Senate Homeland Security Committee held a very nice, I would say, problem oriented, problem-solving oriented hearing on domestic terrorism. And I don't want to go bog down the details. Uh, I'll just mention one thing that I thought was very interesting that came out of it. Um, talking with uh, Clint Watts as, as a fellow witness, it became clear there's some very interesting work to be done in thinking through how FBI is internally organized to support and promote the uh, the optimal use of its investigative techniques in domestic terrorism cases, bearing in mind changes to the attorney general guideline, first under Ashcroft in 2002, and then again under McKaysey in 2008, both of which were were focused towards, uh, and these are changes to the domestic guidelines, which include uh, terrorism enterprise investigations. The way they were uh, up until 2002, um, it was very clear you did need that criminal predication uh, before you started going down that pathway of, of even, you know, the, the earliest steps in the investigation. Um, and in 2002, Ashcroft amended that guideline to make clear that certain steps, in particular, looking at publicly available online information, so observing what people were posting publicly on their, their sites, going to public gatherings, that these sorts of things, even when you didn't know who you were looking for, were important parts of counterterrorism prevention, including in the purely domestic context. Um, 
And the question, if, if I were in a position to be conducting oversight, I would want to get really down into the details of how good has the uptake been when it's not in Al-Qaeda or Islamic State, sort of classic international terrorism setting. There, what I'm concerned about is the possibility that there may be a perception that the internal rules disfavor application of these methods in the domestic terrorism setting to a much greater extent than I think is actually the case under these rules. Um, and there may be a perception that there are things you can do for international terrorism, which clearly there are some things you can do for international terrorism you can't do for domestic terrorism. Just look at FISA, et cetera. But I'm afraid there may be a sense organizationally and predication-wise uh, that there's a problem that may not actually be there in the rules. And we don't want to have... I'm not suggesting it's risen to the level of the misperceptions that it became embodied in the idea of the wall, but there's a little bit of smoke there, in, in my view, about possible cultural misunderstandings about where the lines are, where we could be doing more that might be useful for domestic terrorism at the federal investigative levels. All right. Um, I think we should pivot in our limited time remaining because this has been a dour show and we need to uplift. So, so one bit of uplifting news, we should note that that your co-author and our mutual friend, Danielle Citron, um, announced yesterday that she's one of the, what, 26 recipients? I think 25 or 25, maybe, yeah. 25, 26. Yeah. She's a MacArthur fellow. She's a genius. Genius, Grant. So oh, we already knew that. We, I mean, already we knew, knew Danielle was a genius, but it's nice to have that officially proclaimed somewhere. It's really cool. I guess say it's very rare for law professors. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're some, but it's pretty rare for law professors to be on that list. But boy, is that well deserved. Wasn't she, wasn't Lynn Manre- Lynn Manuel Miranda a genius grant a couple uh, years ago? It certainly should have been. I think I think that's right. That would have been yeah. That would have been a cool company to keep. Hey, by the way, I'm, I you know I, I can't. I'm wait. right there with Lynn. I can't wait to hear the stories of the hobnobbing that Danielle gets to engage in now. Uh, she hobnobbing I, here among the elite. And <laughs> exactly, she and I actually presented together on Monday at Indeed. Fordham in in an awesome uh, gathering of two classes with Catherine Powell, who's awesome as well. We had it such a great time. And if you go on Twitter, you'll see pictures uh, of us at Rosa Mexicano afterwards uh, drinking pomegranate frozen margaritas, if you're wondering wait, what those purple... Wait, 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 wait. Something has happened here. You were at Fordham Law School. Yep. Last I checked, Fordham Law School is still on 62nd Street and, you know, between Amsterdam and, and, and West End. That's what it seemed to be when I was there. And you went to Rosa Mexicana. We walked across the street to it. A chain that is all over the country and that has nothing. You were on the Upper West Side. You were going out and you went to a chain. It's like you you make it sound like I went to Arby's. You went to Wendy's. So first of all. The guests don't select this, but I'm not throwing Catherine under the best. Rosa Mexicana is a really nice restaurant. Of yes, course it is. And it's nice places. in Washington, D.C., and it's nice in Houston and wherever else it is. Is it you actually on out the Upper West Side. Dude, what are so you doing? Are you telling me that if you were in my positions, you would have objected to where your host was taking you? I would have I would have pointed out that as a native New Yorker, I was offended at going to Rosa Mexicana when I was you know on the Upper West Side already. Did you know that it started in New York, and it wasn't a chain originally? And the guy that opened it... <laughs> The guy that opened it <laughs> Look at this used to be the proprietor of a restaurant called Johnny Tejano's on the Upper East Side when Heather and I lived in New York. And it was the one place we felt as all the Texans we could go to to get some decent enchiladas. And we were heartbroken when he shut it down to open up some new place. So though a chain it may have become, <laughs> it still ain't price liked one. And it was delicious. I'm and I, I will not run down that place. Even right. if, I'm, if, if, if you're ever in D.C. and someone's like, oh, hey, let's go out to drinks. How about Hill Country Barbecue? You know what? If they're buying, all right, fine. 
I'm with them. And, and again, I will stand by it. We had delicious frozen margaritas. And when you're doing that in the middle of the afternoon after hanging out with a yeah, bunch of smart students, where it is. who cares where you yeah. are? All right. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I like I'm, it. You almost, I felt a little vulnerable there. I almost feel like you had me, but then I, I stand by the fact that, the, it, you pulled out the, that it started yeah, there and it originates there. Right. It's a little bit like, you know, like saying, you know, if Torchies ends up all over the country as it increasingly is, I still won't be shy about going there. Yes. I mean, that's right. You, right. One could point out that, that, um, I, it's hardly like I would avoid Antonio's Pizza in Amherst just because there are now outlets in other places. There you go. There you go. But I. But that was you were. That was that was good. You tried. You almost got me. I feel I, like almost. Almost. Um, okay. Speaking Fri- of almost getting me. Frivolity. Frivolity. So my friends, one thing we noticed is that uh, it's getting late in 2019, which means that we are on the cusp of. And, a, and one of us is just entering his fifth decade. That's right. And. <laughs> One of one of us is closer to entering his sixth, but we don't need to talk about no. that. Um, what we do need to talk about is the fact that this time of the decade, you get that once in a decade experience of all the best of decades lists, right? Because we just don't do them during the off years, but we're coming up on them. And so from time to time on Frivolity, we will check in with our own views and to comment on others' views about the best of this or that list. And we've got one going here. And if you'll just give me a second while I pull it up, Steve, it's about the best movie of the decade. While you're pulling it up, can I just um, read a tweet to you that was sent by an account um, under the name Karen Vladek Esquire? Um, <laughs> Sounds like a troll. Trolling. Ni- oh, it, it's a troll. All right, trolling at 9.45 this morning. Why, yes. My husband went to Amherst slash Yale, is a law professor at a great law school, and the dad to two wonderful children. Now, the next line is in all caps. But did you know he was on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Question <laughs> mark. Then parentheses. Spoiler. He lost. Close parentheses. And there's a link to a video. Why? Okay, can you please tweet that out on our feed so that our, our friends in the audience can enjoy? I just young... tweeted, I, I tweeted it on mine. You can, you know, do it, do it. What you I, I will be finding that later. Okay. Are you ready? According to CNET, the top 30 movies of the decade. I, I don't know where quite where. Don't to, do 30. Well, I'm not going to do all 30. I'm just okay. going to hit the, the highlights. All right. They do in reverse order. Should we, should we do it that way? That's sure. not as fun. Let's, where do you want to jump in? Five, Twi- eight, 15. 10? Okay, 15. Here we go. A little lightning round. Number 15, Shape of Water. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Artsy, interesting. Top 15 of the decade? I don't know. But, mm-hmm. All right. Uh, it's been a weird decade. Did you see number 14, Ryan Gosling's movie Drive, about the stunt driver who's also a getaway driver? See, this is the problem. All this is going to reveal is how few movies I've seen in the last nine years. Okay, what about number, what about this one? The Social Network, the Facebook movie, as the 13th best movie of the entire decade? No. Come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, it was an important movie, but... It was but, an important topic and, yeah. a, and mildly entertaining yeah, movie. It's, yeah, it's, that's just the Aaron Sorkin effect. I, yeah, I guess so. So, yeah, big big objection there. Um, okay, what about uh, Moonlight? Yes. Top 12. That, I think, yes. if anything, probably ought to be higher. Yeah. Uh, but There, but, there but, are 11 movies better than Moonlight? No, but appropriately up high, at least. So yes. I, I'd say that's legit. Yeah. Okay, um, this is interesting. Uh, the Spike Jones movie, Her, you know, where Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Interesting, kind of very... It, it was 2013. Yeah. So it wasn't like miles ahead of its time in terms of projecting the, right, the artificial intelligence. Yeah, the personalization the, yeah. of intelligence yeah. and, and so forth. But, uh, and, and I'm kind of down with most things Joaquin Phoenix does in terms of just his sheer weird artistry. Although I got to say, I can't go see The Joker. Are you going to see that? No, there's only one. I mean, Heath Ledger. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, there's not only one Joker because he thought there was like the 11th person to play the Joker, but I feel like he retired that 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 particular yeah, role. Yeah, he, he absolutely absolutely topped it out. All right, entering the top ten. Uh, think of Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, 2012. That and, and also uh, Joaquin Phoenix as well. So he's got back to back appearances here. Um, so I actually confess I didn't see that one. Um, so I have no opinion on it other than Philip Seymour Hoffman was awesome. True. Uh, do you have a favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman movie or, or role? Just anything. And, and I, I can't resist because I'm just trying to set myself up. I just want to say uh, when he plays Lester Bangs. That's pretty good. In Almost Famous. That's pretty good. It's just so good. Um, his role as the absolutely insane campaign manager in the Ides of March. Um, pretty good. I've not seen, yeah. but I would like to see. Yeah, uh, he's one campaign manager, and Paul Giamatti is the other one. What's the uh, the? Um, is that uh, all, is that Ryan Gosling? I don't Uh-oh. know. That's some oh. famous actor. All right, back to the list. Uh, picking up where her left off. How about Ex Machina, 2015? That Reddit. movie is creepy. Yeah. I saw that movie. So so by the way, I'm just going to reiterate. Not better. So here, hashtag not better than Moonlight. Yeah, uh, certainly so. And also... Maybe the th- creepiest movie of the last decade. Creepy, but also, like, given that it's more... Re- you know, it's yeah. closer in time to our current technology moment. Not as not as much interesting foresight. Right, as her. Yeah. Um, number eight, interesting choice. Love this movie. It's an, It gets to the question of what makes it great, though. Yeah. Black Panther. Like, one of the most entertaining and awesome movies I've important. seen. Important, so awesome. Culturally important. Culturally important is huge here, right? So you can be a you can be a a, a in some dimensions right. a typical yeah. action superhero Marvel, movie. Blah, blah, blah. It's a typical Marvel movie, right. except for its cultural importance, which right. is way more than most movies can ever claim. So I'm I am I am I am not averse to Black Panther being uh, you know top ten uh, top t- in, in a, in but wouldn't a you have of, Moonlight in front of Black Panther? I would. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know, is part of why Black Panther is culturally important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It, it certainly raises interesting questions about what are we measuring here, which is half the fun. I mean, this is right. Yeah. As, as, uh, you, you love nothing more than, uh, you know, what, define the category. Yeah, like tell me what, what, what's the doctrinal test for being on this list. Now, then I can rack and in stack the, them. In, in the very short period of your life before you met and, and ended up together with your wife, did you, you know, how early were you? Uh, this is going to be a terribly dangerous question. I'm how, preemptively how, declining how, to answer how it. How early were you into the define the relationship? conversation because i feel like you know this is oh i would never bring this your... like define the category <laughs> thing into a romance are you kidding that's like the last thing i probably was ever thinking about trying probably to why you had more success dating than i did uh, i will not comment <laughs> on on yours or my uh dating histories <laughs> next subject number seven roma um yeah roma's good real good um it's kind of you know it occupies that space of uh, culturally expansive, well done, uh, smaller budget, lighter footprint, but widely critically received well. So I, I'm not surprised to see that in top 10. Um, number six, and here I've, I just can't really figure this out. The favorite, you know, the period piece. So I, wa- I finally watched it on a plane not that long ago, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but... No, I, I'm actually kind of surprised it's anywhere on the list. I mean, it's good acting, but but no, no, no. but like the top thirty, so like no, no, you know, one of the three best films. Black mean, Panther's better than that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm mystified by that one. I'm not sure about that. Okay, what do you think about Lady Bird? This is a pretty weak list. It's, it's been a but bad decade for movies. It's, I, I warn you, it's gonna get weaker after this. Oh uh, no, Lady Bird, pretty good seen, movie. Okay, it's pretty good. Okay, uh, but I would categorize it as huh, 
Interesting film. Enjoyed that. This is a very sort of like, you know, I, I don't mean artsy. Artsy's not right. I mean, this is a very sort of like cinema, like, you know, movies for movie people, like kind of list. Well, except, except, except for Black, except for Black Panther. Okay, well, okay. Then how do you categorize Get Out coming in at number four? Because it's both yeah. culturally relevant and, and impactful, yeah. but also, I mean. The fourth, but the fourth. Fourth best movie of the last nine years. I mean, mind you, right, I'm not right, exactly right. sitting here being like, here are all the movies I think are better than it. I just, I, either it feels a little weird. Either we're missing some really good movies, or uh, I'm gonna pull up while you're is doing it, this. Is that is that genre bias? Is there is it even though it's an unconventional horror film? Is this it is a, really a horror film has way. no place there. This is a really stupid way to do this, but I want to pull up Oscar Oscar nominees for, right, right. for the last decade. Okay, let me hit you with the fu- while you're doing that. I'll yeah. keep rolling them out. Number three, Richard Linklater and Boyhood. A the cinematic project of, of following this the actual actor as he grew from boy to, to young adult. I'm so um, confused. Uh, he filmed this this kid. His name was L.R. Coltrane uh, every year for 12 years to make this movie. It's it's sort of uh, – it deserves to be in there somewhere as such an unorthodox and amazing project. Yeah, I'm about to crush this list. Okay. Okay, okay. Number two, number two. And I like this. Into the Spider-Verse. A Marvel movie is number two? It's not the same as Avengers, Captain America, Black Panther. Into the Spider-Verse is truly unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and special on many levels. I'm All not right, sure I put terrible, it number two. What terrible movie is number one? <laughs> okay, buckle up. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on this here. This list is designed for like clickbait. This is not a serious it's list. It's such a great list because it's working for us. Mad Max. Nope. Fury Road. So a sequel? <laughs> Okay, so let me just let me just name some of the movies from the last decade that you did not name in, among the top fifteen. They may be somewhere on this yeah. Fakakta list. All right, let's hear it. I'm going in chronological order by year. Okay, bring it on. The King's Speech. Good. Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Inception. Black good. Inception. Ooh, I love Inception. As but, long as we're gonna have just like clever right. fun. The kids are all right. Um, Winter's Bone. The artist. Oh, um, the artist. The help. The artist is real good. Hugo. Um, yep. you know, uh, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, yeah. um, Argo, fantastic movie, um, Beast of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained. Um, I'm not saying Les Mis. I'm not saying Les Mis. Les Mis. No, Les Mis um, is back on the show. Lincoln. Three straight weeks. Lincoln was great. Right. How's Lincoln not one of the top 15 movies of the last decade? By the way, have you heard this story? Can I digress? Uh, Twelve Dan- Years a Slave. Daniel- How is that not one of the so top? So Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln really. Yes, he refused to. Everyone had to have taught. He was President Lincoln the whole time. So he's so deep in the character, and he brought it back. Apparently, I think. Maybe Sandy Levinson told me this. It was a gathering of, of some august body, maybe the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, honoring him as the keynote speaker when they met. And they met in Faneuil Hall. Yeah. And Candle, he still up can, Candlelit dinner. He's himself until they have him go up to give his speech. Now, remember, candlelit, the whole place yeah. feels like a century and a half. That's like, like a- He goes into character to deliver the speech. And then everyone sang the battle hymn of the Republic. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? That's I amazing. hope that's true. I probably right. you know, exaggerated. I'm still on 2013. 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, um, Birdman, uh, which you said Boyhood, yeah. um, The Imitation Game, Selma, um, The Theory of Everything, Spotlight, The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, um, There's Your Stupid Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant, <laughs> um, what else? Fences, um, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land. I'm not saying Manchester by the Sea because that movie destroyed me. Um, 
What else? Uh, get out. We talked about later. We talked about. Can I pause on La La Land? What a cool film! I thought that was. Um, three billboards outside Ebon, Missouri. Oh yeah. I so mean, wait, none of these were on this Fakakta list. Um, well, they might have been there. You know, you had me start at fifteen. None of them were in the top fifteen. Not, not, not one of the movies I just named was was put on this list higher than those twelve crappy and three good movies you mentioned. Friends, I think it's time for Steve to create a website with his own list of Steve's top. What ten of the decade? No, I haven't seen. I mean, I, I haven't seen enough movies. Yeah. I, I'm just saying, right. I've seen those movies, and okay. those movies. So I think you should. I, I'm assuming you haven't seen Into the Spider Verse. I, I think you should see that. Okay. Listeners, reinforce me if you agree with that. Let Steve hear about Into the Spider Verse being special, and not just a Marvel. Wait, meanwhile, standard. Have movie. you seen this? Uh, there's a new Star Trek series coming. Oh, the Picard the series. The Picard series. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited <laughs> for this. Are you, could there be any doubt? No. When, once that Make is it out so. there, um, it, but we're gonna have to subscribe to like what, like CBS or something. What do CBS, you have to say? CBS something. CBS spot. Either okay. CBS something. You and I need to coordinate. CBS All Access. Are we gonna? Are we doing that? Of course. We can review it. Totally. But what about the Mandalorian and getting Disney Plus so we can follow this? The 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 trailer from the Mandalorian series looks incredible. Looks amazing. Are you in? I'm in. You've got young children. You got to get Disney Plus. You don't have a choice. No, no. Uh, dis- I already got. I, there's a, there's some special discount I got by being a D23 member. So I'm already. I'm, All I'm right. In. Very good. Very good. All right, I think we've we've covered the waterfront. It's probably time to let our friends go. Um, all right, well, you know, we'll see what happens between now and next week. No doubt, we'll be back. I just I'm I'm reminded over and over again that when you and I started this podcast, one of our biggest questions was how long we'd have content for. Right. <laughs> there are occasional dry spells. This summer got a little quiet for a while, which is good. All right, I think that's it. Sign us off. I, I just Steve wants to linger. He's staying. No, I just, I, it's all wrong. It, it's just, it's all gone wrong. It's all gone wrong. Too much hubris. All right. Well, stay safe out there. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. And I, I said my thing too quickly. I, 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 I got, you know, I jumped the gun because the Mets are eliminated. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> yeah, he has some spare time now. We'll see what Go year, Astros. We'll see what year 41 has in store. Stay Adios. safe out there. Adios. Bye. <laughs>